Hello and welcome to episode 26 of the Figure Podcast. Each week we figure out people, numbers and images of the past, present and future. And this week it is just us for a very exciting episode, actually, because a lot of my week has been about Michelle Obama. I've fully imbibed myself with her. Yeah, me too. Mm. And just loving every page. Uh-huh. And every video. I watched a lot of videos. It was a good excuse. Yeah, me too. Very, very easy to <laughs> get her into the chain. Interviews with her. Oh my god. <laughs> uh, this week for me has been about Michelle Obama and also Thanksgiving, which is one of my favourite traditions. Now, just to quickly touch on what Thanksgiving is, I'm sure lots of people know about Thanksgiving. It's the biggest holiday in America, and the reason it's so significant to Americans and kind of playing on American culture and American independence is actually the first settlers, um, actually English Puritans, known as the Pilgrims, came from Plymouth in England, shout out, um, which is where (laughs) I went to university and in the Barbican, which is where the harbour is in the centre of town, there are the Mayflower Steps, which is where the Mayflower left in 1620 to the New World. And they did this because they wanted to go to a place where they didn't have an autocratic leader i.e. King, i.e. King Charles. And there were uh, said to have been about 102 passengers, um, but that's all. Yeah, but the number is kind of very ambiguous. They don't actually know. And so Thanksgiving is a celebration known as Harvest Festival, which we sort of have in the UK, vaguely. And it was to celebrate the first uh, successful harvest at the Plymouth Plantation in Massachusetts. Um, after a successful growing season and it had been a terrible year uh, leading up to this first Thanksgiving and a lot of the population had died and um, or had died in plague so they celebrated a meal of Thanksgiving and that was the initial event so to speak that triggered off lots of different various versions of Thanksgiving and then it was made very mainstream by uh, President Jefferson, I believe, ah. in the 1700s. Yeah, I just think it's a really lovely tradition and the message behind it of being grateful for what you have is really important. And, and no material items. Yeah. It's not about presents. No, it's not about consumerism. And I hate that yeah. Black Friday has overtaken Thanksgiving. What is that about? I don't that know. That was not a thing. But I really, really wish that more British people would embrace When was the first Thanksgiving you had? Uh, I did it at uni. Okay. So when I had a flat and a kitchen, I did Thanksgiving dinner... Mm. with my brother and then the following year I did it for all of my housemates and the girls in the flat above and then I was away last year and this year I went on a houseboat and we had Thanksgiving with one of my friends who I haven't seen in years fun and question when you're on a houseboat does it feel like a boat oh yeah it 100% feels like a boat (laughs) you're just rocking from side to side the whole time which is hilarious when you've had a couple of glasses of wine yeah do you feel extra drunk when you get onto normal ground do you feel oh okay i'm not that no you keep swaying when you're on normal (laughs) ground (laughs) you just keep rocking fair enough it's really weird (laughs) because we were there from 2 30 until 9 30 oh my god so i had seven hours of just rocking all day yeah it was great though, it was really good. And we went round the table and we um, had to say what we were grateful for. And I actually said that I was grateful for social media because the two friends who I went to school with who had invited me to this 
uh, I had both reconnected with because of social media. It's definitely easier, it's so much easier to keep in touch with people via social media. It is. You can yeah. instantly message someone at any time of the day. It's, yeah. I think we, we, we forget what that would have been like before now. Um, you just wouldn't have known where people were no. if they were travelling. Yeah. So it was great. How about you? Did you celebrate Thanksgiving? Yes, uh, we celebrate Thanksgiving every year. And we go to the same family friend's house every year. I think this is our 12th or 13th year. Wow. And before they I love those yearly traditions. And so every year we have to go around and make a speech. Uh, and gosh, now I'm thinking, man, I'm grateful that I don't get scared... Well, I do get scared speaking in public, but I mean, you can really freeze up and you, you see people panic. Well, that's what it was like even stand, just around this table. You have to stand really, up and think, yeah. shit, what am I going to say that's nice <laughs> and good and clever? I think clever. it gets harder as people go around the table as well because lots of things have been ticked off and you don't want to sound repetitive mm, sometimes. But equally, you don't want to not give thanks to the, you know, to the hosts, yes. uh, to your parents. You know, my parents are always sitting there... Um, which, of course, I'm so grateful for. I'm so grateful for my mum and my brother was there. I hadn't seen my brother in such a long time. So, and it's just really important to really appreciate uh, those individuals because they're not going to be around forever. And and you don't always get to spend time together either. No, exactly. So it's really nice. And also just seeing old friends uh, because, again, everyone lives in lots of different places. So that well, is what I'm most grateful for. And also the ability to listen and the ability to reflect. I think having this podcast, um, doing the job that I'm doing at the moment, I think it's really important to be able to listen carefully to others um, and not, you know, there's a lot of rhetoric going around at the moment, sort of loud voices in Parliament and the media, mm. certain presidents in, in America. Uh, I, I like that, I like that when I can listen and reflect. Yeah, I agree. I'm also very grateful for the amount of food that was served <laughs> and that, yeah, I, I really love Thanksgiving food. It's great. Yeah, it's really good. We had a, a non-traditional one, but it was American. We had Martha Stewart's mac and cheese, which was so good. And it had uh, crispy bread on the top of it just oh, to delicious. load on more carbs. It was, it was really great. What's your favourite Thanksgiving dish? Uh, pecan pie. Mm. Good answer. The first figure this week is Michelle Obama. And the reason that Michelle... Uh, Michelle. Oh, we're all calling her Michelle now. The reason <laughs> Michelle is our figure... Sorry, that's really weird. Um, is because she's just released her book called Becoming. And I think there still is an Obama hangover, in a good sense, actually, in that we kind of do miss them and then forget that they're not there. And so now all of her press that she's been doing around the book has been like, oh, yeah, Michelle Obama's back. This is really nice. Um, really positive. Um, and always talking positively about the country and her time as First Lady. And also, I think it's just a reminder to people how different their White House... Like, the seat of the White House was so different under the Obamas than it is under the Trumps. And you can we can debate back and forth as to what progress or no progress there was under Barack Obama. But what you cannot deny is the utmost professionalism, the warmth, the kind of kindness and the unity that the Obamas brought to America. And I think that's what people really, really miss at the moment. Yeah, I watched um, an Ellen rundown of Michelle Obama's you know, time as first that's lady for video. eight years. Yeah. And they ran through things like Let's Move, which yeah. was all about her getting people moving and exercise. And 
um, Let Girls Learn as well and mm. the help that she did for military families. Joining and, forces. Yeah. yeah, so lots and lots of different projects that she didn't need to do any of that, but no. she made such a huge impact and it just made me cry. I just mm. wanted to have that back again yeah. and and watch some of the speeches that Obama made back in 2004 and he talks about the audacity of hope and I just love that phrase and I feel mm. like we're really missing that Absolutely. in the world Absolutely. at the moment. Well she said um, in an interview with Oprah that as a black individual or as a black family you've you know you, you've always been told that you've got to work twice as hard to be half as good um, and she said you know that was no mistake what we appeared from the outside in the White House and what we did and what we sunk our teeth into. That was very deliberate. We were so busy. We really inundated ourselves and everything that we could because we really wanted the best for the American people. Mm. Um, and they talk in that interview about how strange the transition has been from yeah. going to the White House to going to a house where she can open the windows and she's allowed to open the windows yeah. and she can make herself some toast Yeah, and she isn't having somebody hang over her and make it for her and fuss and she can put roll down the window in the car uh she can it just makes like, you realize. i love hearing about those little weird things in the white house that you just wouldn't expect she tells a story as well in an interview about um her daughter's prom date coming to the white house and all of the sort of she she briefed security. She said, "Look, this young, this poor young guy, <laughs> is already coming to take the president's daughter to prom with about five cars following them with machine guns. Can we please make this process as simple and nice for him as possible?" Can you imagine? <laughs> no, I can't. Um, and we've both started her book uh, this week, and I think we know. I don't know, I would say I knew a fair amount about her in her public, from her public image in the last 10 years, but I really didn't know much about her early life. And I also didn't know how close-knit her family were and what a tight community she came from, the south side of Chicago, um, and how hard she worked to get into Princeton and, you know, become a lawyer and the relationship she has with her brother... Yeah. And I've been really enjoying reading about that. And she talks about the difference between her and Barack in that way. In that, you know, he didn't know his father. His mother kind of was, you know, 18 when she had him, kind of came and went. He was raised by his grandmother, whereas she had the the square, as she refers to as her family, mm. uh, with her mother, father, brother, and her. And just their different parents. And her aunt and uncle and, and, and her uncle, grandparents. And her grandparents and the neighbourhood and her friends. And I think it's very relatable to uh, mm. a lot of families. But also the difference in that she's always described her some, as someone who's very tick the boxes, get it done, mm. follow the path, kind yeah. of... And, and felt uh, that she's always had to be. Yes. Um, whereas Obama is... She describes the kind of swerve of yeah. him. But he is so swervy. <laughs> when you see him, he's just super charming, speaks really slowly, got the sort of Hawaiian kind of chill about him. <laughs> But it's also really serious mm. at the same time and is so genuine and compassionate. I think they're both incredibly compassionate. Mm. And I am also loving reading her mm. early years, which is, I think we're both at about chapter six or something. Yes. Um, but I agree with the review that was published in the Sunday Times, which said that the charm is in the details. 
And I completely agree with that. She is actually such a brilliant storyteller. Yeah. I knew that the content of this book was going to be fascinating, and there've been lots of there's been lots and lots and lots of press around it about her having a miscarriage, about having a couples therapy with Obama, all sorts of family details that nobody really knew about before this book came out. But I didn't expect it to be so well written and so compelling. Mm in all of those, the ways that she can paint a picture of her little room with her brother and the partition and they just throw a ball of socks over the partition between each other's beds and when she did her first piano recital and she gets up and the piano is completely perfect and she's never played a piano that hasn't got broken keys and then her aunt comes out and he, she was the piano teacher and puts her finger on middle C mm. and then she's able to do her piano recital. But I thought the that was a really beautiful metaphor, the kind of finding your middle C. Yeah. And then where do you, you can kind of go then anywhere from that. Ground yourself a bit from that. Absolutely. I also think what's really poignant about this book is she really paints a very graphic picture of what opportunity like was for people of colour in the 70s and 80s, which... If you didn't live through it, I don't think... And I still don't have any idea what that would have been like, but I think that it's important to note that a lot of the... When she's exploring a lot of the characters in this story, you can really feel a lot of broken dreams and a lot of people who had to make lots of sacrifices um, because of their ethnicity. And this or in order to support their families to give them better opportunities. Yeah, I think there's a lot which is of, what her parents yeah, did. Yeah, a lot of next generation kind of hoping that they'll be able to go further. Mm. Um, she's talking here about her paternal grandfather, who she calls Dandy. Dandy took what work he could find, setting pins in a bowling alley and freelancing as a handyman. Gradually, he downgraded his hopes, letting go of the idea of college, thinking he trained to become an electrician instead. But this too was quickly thwarted. If you wanted to work as an electrician, or as a steelworker, carpenter or plumber, for that matter, or any of the big job sites in Chicago, you needed a union card. And if you were black, the overwhelming odds were that you weren't going to get one. This particular form of discrimination altered the destinies of generations of African Americans, including many of the men in my family, limiting their income, their opportunity and eventually their aspirations. Yeah, it's such a wonderful extract. Well, I feel like she summed that up yeah. in those three sentences. Yeah. And you think, oh, wow. Yeah, I think that's what makes her such a great storyteller is and that then, she can tell one sentence yeah. and you just get it. But also, that's almost force When you read that, that and then you remember that Barack and Michelle and their daughters were in the White House for yes. eight years, it's so moving to think that an African-American family were in that, even though that's the experience she had when she was young. Mm, really I completely thing. agree. Um, and the piece that I wanted to read out um, is very different, and it's about her at Princeton and the way that she felt when she was around children, which obviously became a great big part of her role as First Lady in the programmes that she set up. And she started an after-school programme for kids at Princeton who were normally the kids of the professors who were also in a minority there were very very few black students and black professors and it was kind of the first part where she had felt out of place and she would go into a room she'd be the only black person in that room yeah. and up until that point she had always been surrounded by people who looked and sounded like her um, so this is talking about being with the children for me the hours flew 
Being around children had a wonderful obliterative effect, wiping out school stress, forcing me out of my head and into the moment. As a girl, I'd pass whole days playing mummy to my dolls, pretending that I knew how to dress and feed them, brushing their hair and tenderly putting band-aids on their plastic knees. Now I was doing it for real, finding the whole undertaking a lot messier, but no less gratifying than what I'd imagined. I'd go back to my dorm after a few hours with the kids, drained but happy. And that section really resonated me as so many parts of the book have. And even though I am someone who has not experienced anything like the struggles that she has in terms of racism, the parts where she's talking about um, her drive and this feeling that she has to show herself and prove herself, and then the effect that spending time with young children and forcing yourself out of your to-do list and into the moment is something that I really, really related to. Same, and you only really have that when you're with children, actually. Because mm-hmm. you, you, mm-hmm. you, you can't think about anything else. And yeah. And thinking about anything else. But I think that, in, a, in general, this is the power of Michelle Obama, that she can find... She's communicating a human experience that everybody can connect with mm. in some way. Well, yeah, she was very, they were very elect. I mean, she was very electable for that reason because she shared those things when mm. they were running for office and mm-hmm. it really, really resonated very strongly with a lot of Americans. Yeah, um, and people all over the world. Absolutely. I found, um, this is slight, obviously slightly later on in her life, but talking about when Barack was president and if you think about all of the hor- like some of the horrific things that occurred in his presidency, including the Sandy Hook murders, um, the shooting, and she said... Uh, in an interview she said when the weight of the world is on his shoulders and you're the shoulders he's leaning on how do you cope with that and actually that reminded me of all of those strong women who over the last thousands of years whether you're wives of kings wives of presidents wives of you know because a lot of the time these big world leaders have been male because Mm -hmm. of issues that we talk about but behind those men are these incredibly strong women who literally have the world and yes. then their husbands. Yeah. And she says to be calm, to have family dinners every evening, um, to create a sort of fairly normal family life and routine mm-hmm. um, and taking it back to basics. From, yeah, from yeah exactly, exactly. Mm. But I think that what's different about Michelle in terms of the way that Barack talks about her and looks at her and he is so inclusive and appreciates her publicly i know it's so amazing which just makes me want to cry when he took her hand and kissed it when we were when when they were doing the transition bit in the inauguration you had melania and donald trump and then michelle obama and barack obama and you could see trump and melania you were like oh and he was holding on to michelle the entire time kissed her hand Mm. they were always like together he was constantly you know aware of where she was all the time and it was just so love it's just so lovely to see yeah such warmth I think, and love yeah absolutely and I think that you over the years and decades and centuries there exactly as you say there have been brilliant women behind mm-hmm. these men of so power many. but they have always stayed in the shadows yeah. and with Michelle she there is nothing in no. the shadows about her no. And for people all over the world... She also takes no bullshit. Like, yeah. You just would know it wouldn't be like a Clinton, Monica Lewinsky yeah, she's situation. she's such a role model. <laughs> and I went to this amazing event on Friday um, evening, which was a pop-up in celebration of her book. 
and it's still on until the 28th of November in London at 10 Bury Place. So if you are around, definitely go and have a look. It's been set up by Penguin and Waterstones and Galdem. All the books are written by women of colour or non-binary people of colour. And there are lots that you may recognise, like Slay on Your Lane, or things from Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie, who's going to be interviewing Michelle Obama in London <gasps> for the book oh tour. And I, those tickets would have been harder to get than Glastonbury tickets, and I'm really sad that they are, there aren't more. They should have filled the O2 with that. Yeah, they really should have. And then donated all the money to Girl Up or a charity or something. Mm. Uh, but do go along to that. So I think these ripples of conversation that Michelle Obama is creating through writing this memoir, which is so honest and so warm and so compelling, is yet another layer of the impact that she's having. In one word, what does Michelle Obama mean to you? Compassion. I would say strength. The second figure that we are going to be talking about in today's episode is that the new David Attenborough series, Dynasties, has taken 1,950 days to record, which is the equivalent of five years and a third. That is absolutely staggering. And there are five episodes. So with some of the dynasties, which are the families that they are spending time with, such as, so the, the five are chimpanzees penguins lions painted wolves and tigers mm -hmm. for some of those families they've spent two years just mm -hmm. with that one pride or one troop of chimpanzees wow and this is why it's my favorite david attenborough series so far that's absolutely remarkable and even for programs like planet earth i mean i remember w watching the ocean episode and there are these type of fish or type of sea creature that only had a particular migration once a month and changed colour and changed direction and there was this whole sequence and they basically said if they missed this one tiny window they had to wait till the next month and they had to film it over several months to mm -hmm. get the right angles and to get the right mm -hmm. and they had to study it for ages beforehand and that was just one mm. species mm -hmm. and I just I remember thinking what oh my god yeah that's absolutely extraordinary yeah it is um, i think the dedication of the filmmakers and the producers and editors and directors that bring all of this footage together because think about how much footage you would have after that many days of you filming because if you think about a david attenborough program right they are and you watch a sequence of say an animal hunting something it's like you're you're there, there but better but better Imagine how many takes, because that's not in one take. Like, they'll have to watch animals again and again and again and again and again and again. And maybe that one particular hunt was one take, but they actually had to have followed lots of different mm. animals in that particular. My worst clip from Planet Earth was the snake one, which I'm going to link underneath. And um, if you dare watch it, then uh, let me know. Um, <laughs> but what I was thinking about when I was uh, researching this section was... What's the importance of making documentaries like this? And I think there are two reasons that they cite, or the David Attenborough team. And the first one is, something like Planet Earth, for example, we have that scene with the turtle and all the plastic. 
Mm-hmm. That is something that is going into the mainstream living rooms of thousands and millions of families across the UK, many of whom may not have ever been exposed to plastic pollution or anything to do with wildlife and the ocean health, as it were. And secondly, they said this on Sunday, that teams like the Dynasty team are undoing a lot of animal injuries and interference who have come in contact with harmful humans. Yes, and we saw that in the most recent Lions episode where poisoning is one of the biggest threats to lions. Mm, mm. I just had no idea about that. Yeah, Yeah, it's it's absolutely crazy. It is, it it just... (sighs) (laughs) But yeah, I I agree with those two points and Mm. I think that the... The other things I would add is that it's inspiring young people to take up conservation. Yeah, to become, see the world. To become more interested in it. Yeah. And then just the viewers in general, like you were saying with the turtles and plastic pollution, to think twice about their what they're buying, yeah. what they're throwing away, what yeah. they're recycling. And that the mentality can be really altered by a program like this yeah. because it's very because ma- it appeals to a lot of people who are very mainstream yeah um whereas something like watching your plastic seems a bit ooh, you know hooky cokey hopefully not as much anymore but it really you know even a year ago was seen as very you know ooh, young millennial yeah what did you think about the um inter- interfering in quote unquote in the penguins episode that was very controversial that was very controversial um, Should we explain what happened? Yes. For anybody who hasn't seen this, watch it because you will cry and it is so powerful and so humbling to watch this, what the penguins are going through every single year. I don't know how they survive. Um, they three Lots of mother penguins get stuck in this ravine That's with so their awesome. baby penguins who are not going to be able to survive without them because it's so cold and there's and no food. And they can't get up because they've got to use their feet and it's a steep slope. And they can't hold the baby And they can't as well. hold the baby as well. There's one mother who manages it. There's another mother who has to abandon her chick, which is devastating. Yeah, it's awful and what watch. the crew did, which I think was brilliant, is that they create steps so that the penguins oh. can get out. Yeah. So they haven't touched them. They haven't interfered in any other way. They've seen that it's possible for some penguins to get out, but they help them and they all go up. And and this is the thing about they've spent eleven months there. Yeah, they say they get very attached to the animals. So attached, of course you would, because you're you're day in day out. Yeah. What did you think about it? Well, obviously, I'm, I love animals so much. I would always say intervene whenever possible. I would never want anything... And same with a human. I would never want anyone to suffer. Um, so, yeah, I'm totally for intervening. Mm-hmm. I don't see... I, but I think the, the arguments were interesting because they were saying how it's one of the golden rules of being a nature photographer that, or filmmaker that you never intervene, especially because you don't know what the knock-on effect is going to be. That if you see... Yeah a predator and prey and you help the prey escape yeah then and it's you know baby gazelle or something you may end up separating gazelle from their mother anyway and yeah. then you're disrupting the food cycle and yeah. and in this case they weren't disrupting any food cycle they weren't causing harm to the animals or to themselves and it was completely the right thing to do david Attenborough himself said that he would have done the same thing mm. but 
I mean, one could argue that by filming and studying and in- intensely watching animals and mm. maybe being conservationist, that's some kind of interruption anyway. Yeah, you know? I know what you mean, but I think that to anybody who thinks that that's a unnecessary interruption, the reasons that we've just cited of that education, the conservation, the minimising human impact such as poisoning, mm. poaching and raising awareness mm. is so important. And also the sad, the saddest part about this dynasties especially is that all of the animals that they're featuring are endangered, critically endangered yeah. animals. And it makes me feel sick that this might be the best preservation that we have of some of these species going forward because these one hour long episodes they're never going anywhere Mm. which is what I love that they've done but I really hope that we're preserving it on screen and it's not going to be the last relic of these incredible animals Mm. it actually is hard to imagine a world where all of those species are critically endangered I I quite but it's one of those things we've I've been told that since I was such a young child in geography and at school and and I just it doesn't feel real and then yeah. when you watch a show like that and you actually see the facts yeah you think, uh, yeah oh god I I'm, hope I'm my children will be able I can't to see wait these to see the painted wolves episode mm. um because when I was in Africa I was incredibly lucky to see 13 painted wolves and there are only 5,000 left in the entire world. There are so few of these animals and they are amazing. They work together like you've never seen packs hunting before. It's incredible. I look forward to Mm. that episode. I think the other thing that struck me when I was watching this is what it means to be human as a physical thing in that there were so many moments where an animal would have an injury or they wouldn't be able to pick up their baby or, you know, get out of this ravine. They'd have to use their beak and their wings and Mm. it was incredible watching them do what they were doing. But the fact that we have hands and we can go and heal things and we can cling on to stuff, I was like, that actually is a really quite unusual Mm. thing in the animal kingdom. I also like that when when we build steps or when the crew build steps... It's that thing that you always think, and I grew up a lot of the time thinking this, that the animal kingdom and the human kingdom are very separate. Like, you see things on TV, and you're like, that's in Africa. That's really far away from here. Um, well, that's in Antarctica. That's in Antarctica. And or South America. You just can't imagine the human-animal interaction. And then when you see the crew, you know, having spent so much time with them, Mm. you do mm-hmm. you feel that connection I, I think, think the, it's lost yeah a lot, especially living in a city definitely but I think the other thing is that it is incredibly humbling because you see how brutal and beautiful nature can be and that if we didn't have the tools which we've been able to create with our hands yeah we just wouldn't survive anything no we wouldn't the other thing that I was thinking about was how again where humans fit into the animal kingdom and how the drama of this, of the the way that they present it with the music and the cinematography. And it's brilliant. It is absolutely brilliant. And I, I don't really like watching drama programmes that much, as you know. <laughs> um, yeah. But when it comes to this, this is the best drama that you can see. And I get so attached and I'm so enthralled by what's going on and the names that they have for these beautiful Charm. animals Charm the lioness and David the chimpanzee <laughs> it's just so sweet um, but also that they're exploring very big 
relatable themes that we have in humanity as well, such as feminine resilience and political allies and working together in a huddle to keep each other warm and the dedication of parents to getting that egg to actually survive. Mm. And it just is, it's really, really humbling watching. It it brings it back to basics. And I think that's why it's really cool that it's on on a Sunday evening. It's such a great time to have it. It's my favourite, favourite part of the week. Yeah, and it's nice on a Sunday evening when, you know, maybe you don't feel that uh, excited for a Monday, but at least you have that. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. So watch it if you haven't already. The third figure for this week's episode is the drawing by Gustav Klimt of the reclining nude with leg raised, um, which dates at about 1912 to 1913. And it is currently a part of an exhibition by the Royal Academy in London um, of Sheila... And Klimt. And Klimt. So, and all of the drawings on display at the Royal Academy at the moment are from the Albertina Museum, which is in Vienna. And it's a really interesting comparison and collection of these two artists who were both painting and drawing in Vienna at the turn of the century and Klimt was in many ways a teacher to Schiele uh, and you can kind of see the lines of influence and the thought and subject matter influence but Schiele takes it to a kind of rawness Mm. um, and uses colour in a very different way and it's in it's more painful to look at what Sheila has produced. There's more torture and trauma there, but the bones of it have very much been influenced by Klimt. So could you give us a bit more context of Vienna at the time? Yes. Uh, so I did my dissertation on Vienna, and I knew that I was going to do my dissertation on Vienna even before I started going to university because I went to an exhibition at the National Gallery in London which was all about Viennese portraiture and I was very lucky to be shown around by somebody who was part of the National Gallery and she told me all about the context of it and the how Vienna was a place of contradictions and contrasts Mm -hmm. and how that played into the art and created this incredible situation where you had musicians and sculptures. The contradictions, what do you mean? Yeah, so it's geographically between the East and the West. Yes. It had some of the richest people in Europe, and at the same time it had some of the poorest immigrants. It had some of the most progressive medical discoveries and doctors, at the same time as having an epidemic of syphilis. It had legal and civic equality to the Jews, and they had more rights in Vienna than they did in other cities, but it also was incredibly anti-Semitic. And they had all these individuals, as I was saying, philosophers, painters, musicians, who were achieving incredible things. But it also had one of the highest, the highest suicide rate in all European cities at the time. Wow. So it was the city of extremes. And I think that the art that comes out of it is connected to all of these different facets, but is also in a very extreme position and is really forward thinking and very much looking at the taboos of society as well and female masturbation being one of them. Right. So, And that's interesting because that's still a big taboo now, yeah. 100 years later. More than 100 years More later. More than 100 years later. So with the image of the reclining nude with raised leg, even looking at it now, you sort of 
can't quite believe what you're looking at. Yeah. So I can't even imagine what it would have been like at the time. Well, they wouldn't necessarily have been on display at the time. Okay. How come? Um, because they were private drawings. These weren't commissioned by anybody. These were studies that Klimt would have done himself of models, of lovers. Mm. Um, so is there a lot of discussion around the reason as to why he drew them? The reason that he drew them, I think, is a wider part of the way that he represented and saw women. And what's so interesting about this, and he also represented lots of lesbian relationships, which was also included in the exhibition, um, it's this sex as pleasure without procreation. Mm -hmm. Because what I read around was how sinful sex in the eyes of the church is often sex which hasn't got a procreative aspect to it. Yeah, definitely. And so, even marriage yeah, for the procreation of children. Between homosexuals and masturbation and, all of, and orgasm and all of that, that is not talked about, seen in a good light at all no, in terms all. of the church. Um, but with Klimt, as I said, between this East and West Vienna, he travelled to places like Ravenna, which is where the gold mosaic um, influence partly comes from. You see in lots of his paintings. Where, whereabouts is Ravenna? Ravenna is Italy. It's yeah. in Italy, okay. Um, and there's a church there which is dedicated to the Empress Theodora. And she was or was known as somebody who was very sexually empowered. And so this is the other thing with Klimt. You've got these women who were empresses, Empress Theodora and Empress Elizabeth, who was in Vienna. Again, she wrote lots of poetry with sexual fantasies. And when she died, she was worshipped like a kind of goddess. But then at the same time, the people who were censoring Klimt's work they loved her poetry. So mm. it's this kind of contradiction. And then, of course, you've got Freud, who is talking all about the repression of your sexuality and the damage that it can do, but it came from one of the most sexually repressed cities. So there's this interplay, which is just so, so interesting. Yeah. yeah, and I think that in my research, I there are aspects to Klimt, obviously, which are voyeuristic in art history terms, which means that you're, it's the male gaze and it's looking at people in a way where you haven't necessarily got their consent and it's derogatory. Mm -hmm. um, one art historian describes him as reducing women to sexuality, but I would argue that he in some way is elevating them to sexuality because he's appreciating their sexual independence mm -hmm. and then this energy in his awe of women feeds into his public portraits of them. Mm. Um, you can definitely see that in the image. That yeah. It is very much so an impact. Like, she is creating her own pleasure for herself. Yeah, and it's a however, celebration of that in however, some ways. Yes, that's true. But also, that image is, is also going to be sexually pleasurable to a male. Yeah. And he would have been observing her, either a lover or mm -hmm. whomever. And Klimt was obviously someone who enjoyed a lot of sex himself. Obviously, he had, obviously. Uh, 14 illegitimate children. Right, so you you could argue that that is slightly reducing her somewhat to sexuality. I mean, you see like a lot of her body mm. revealed there. But bringing in the context of it, the way that he interacted with women in society and particularly with his daughter, I found really interesting to look into. So this was Elizabeth Laderer, who's now been proven to be his daughter. And she showed a particular talent for drawing and sculpture 
and they went to an exhibition together which was a series of work from Cezanne and the guards told this little girl, Klimt's daughter, that she wasn't able to go in because she was too young and she wouldn't understand it and she wouldn't know anything about it. And Klimt's retort was, she knows more about Cezanne than you ever will. And he really encouraged her to develop her passion for art. He worked very closely with a woman called Emile Floger, who was a dress designer. Lots of the dresses that the women that Klimt painted were designed by her. Um, and it was a real partnership. And I think that the appreciation of women's intelligence and independence is something that is missed out in art history for Klimt and which you really only get when you look at it as a whole. You can't just look at one thing in isolation. Hmm. And do you think that's... And that's been the main criticism of him? With the... Yeah. The of the female? Yeah, I think so. I think that people jump to conclusions a lot. But I think that the, what it's I found... It's hard not to, though, right? It is hard not to. Um, but it's the same with everything. Everything always has more story, and Michelle Obama was always talking about context. There's always a context to something. And I think what I found disappointing about this exhibition, which on the whole I thought was very good, but they didn't cover these images of sexuality in a way that I would have liked to have seen. In some ways it was very progressive of the RA, in some people's eyes, to include this in the first place. But on, on this particular one, they made no reference to the taboo of female sexuality, appreciating the pleasure. They talked about him sharpening his pencil, which may have been a euphemism, <laughs> but they looked at, they looked at the pencil quality it's of it. because it's still really taboo. Mm. Now, yeah. it's still difficult for people to look at well, that. Well, we saw that on the Tube campaign. So mm. Vienna was um, exhibiting lots of the drawings done by Sheila and they were banned by advertising standards. And it says, sorry, 100 years old, but still too daring uh, for today. Hashtag art to artists freedom, which was the motto of the succession, which was the group of artists that Sheila and Klimt were associated with. Mm. Um, and I think this is what is really important about what Scarlett Curtis and Grace Campbell have done with their campaign, hashtag girls wank too. It's just, it's just really important because why is male masturbation seen as normal and why is it not seen as even you saying that Def phrase sounds weird, just saying male master masturbation, because yeah. you just say masturbation. You would just say but masturbation. you always have to specify. To female. With, yeah. Um, and I guess that's a, a long-standing problem in that we've, I guess, made female sexuality more shameful in order to control mm -hmm. women. Um, because, you know, I guess the thinking is back in the day, if a woman was going out and having lots of sexual partners and there was not many contraception, I don't know, there'd be different children of different... Mm. You know, the, the, there was a very massive um, emphasis. I think it's deeper than that. It goes, it goes back centuries and it's a, there's a very complicated narrative with mm. um, humans moving into having possessions and using tools and having, you know, land. You see that in Sapiens when people start settling down and then women become part of the possessions and mm. the control and the wanting to make sure that their children are theirs and not anybody else's. And yeah. then the Bible and they talk about the fall of Eve and yeah. you have the snake. Mary Magdalene. And Mary Magdalene who is turned into a prostitute yes. when there is absolutely no, no evidence, evidence at all yeah. that she was a prostitute and no, this was conflated. Absolutely. Not that there would be anything wrong if she was a prostitute, but she that was their way of repressing yeah. and taking the power away from that character yeah exactly yeah, person exactly um, 
And interestingly yeah. with the snake, so this is a contrast between the way in that Western and Eastern sexuality can be seen, that the snake is a symbol of sin and the devil mm. in the Western traditional religions, mm. but in the East and with Tantra and with Kundalini, which mm. is symbolic of a snake, it's all about sexual, creative, very powerful energy mm. that we all have within us and that can be awakened absolutely and, and i feel like we kind of almost take it in the west and ridicule it like tantra mm -hmm. has now become this sort of really hyped awful hollywoodized for and it's, that's actually not what it's about yeah the, the part yeah. of us connecting with your spirituality and connecting with sexuality which is a huge part of yeah. your physical and spiritual and i don't body. want to be really separating on that where i'm saying oh being orientalist and saying because that's another problem where the east has just become in many ways for art history it became very sexualized and then that mm. was actually really really damaging but it's just it's interesting for me looking at the way that the different religious texts and how buddhism in comparison to christianity mm. approach this and the different stories and how they have influenced artists and how klimt himself was influenced by buddhism a lot and particularly by japanese prints um shunga prints which are very graphic lots of people would describe them as pornographic um and lots of people would describe this as pornographic that he's done mm. um kind of personal pornography but there's nothing violent about it which is the way that i see a lot of modern day porn and uh there was <laughs> do you charlotte <laughs> no, i don't actually right. know because That's i never i've literally well, never seen it's it a, it's a really massive problem mm. and they said in the hilo um in the episode last week that since 2007 erectile dysfunction has increased by four thousand percent and that's also correlating highly with you know uh, pornography available on the internet very readily. Wow. So that's a very staggering... Well, there's a, there's a quote from Rianne Esler on pornography, and she talks about it as, sex is more like making war than making love. And I think mm. I think that concisely puts it across, but... Um, Absolutely. Mm. And I think that everyone is probably very curious at this moment in time, so I'd encourage you to... Uh, go and have a look at this Go and have a look and at go, this Go image. and have a look at the exhibition. Yeah. Even though their labels had something to be desired in the final room, in general, it's a very good exhibition. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of The Figure. As always, we love to hear from you and your comments and questions, and also suggestions for other figures that you would like us to talk about. <laughs> I'm going to finish your sentence. Uh, you can contact us uh, by email. We are thefigurepodcast at gmail.com or by Instagram or Twitter. We are at figurepodcast. Until next week. Bye-bye.